0: Audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10:30 AM. What do you argue about? We all argue, don't we? I mean, there's there's probably no one in this room who has never ventured into the realm of arguing. Some people are better at it than others. What do you argue about? You argue about politics? You argue about sports? KU got drilled yesterday. And I've been saying that for a while now because it was football season. It's basketball season now, and they still got drilled yesterday. Uh, maybe you argue about sports a little bit. What about, what about religion? You argue about religion, um, religious teachings, those sorts of things. What about a shopping list? Have you ever argued about a shopping list? Um, sometimes I send text messages to my wife while she is at the grocery store And she just doesn't get them because she doesn't come home with some of the things I asked her to get. And I don't understand that. I don't. What about vacation destinations? You ever argue argue about that one? On that note, let me ask you something else. Do you ever do battle with anyone? Because sometimes arguing feels more like battle, does it not? Do you ever do battle with anyone who is the definition of contentious? I mean... They are living, walking examples of contentiousness. Do you ever? And, and maybe you shy away from that sort of confrontation because you know it's not going to end well for you. It's, it's like they know all the rules of arguing... They know how to bend the rules of engagement when it comes to arguing. They know your weaknesses because you've challenged them before. And the question you have to ask yourself sometimes is this. Should I just leave it alone? I know this isn't going to end very well. I know it's not. I know that I'm going to be on the losing end of this confrontation Is the debate really worth the work and the stress? Well, the answer to that question is this. It depends on who you're arguing with and what you're arguing about. You know the arguing that gets most tiring and could be labeled yet as the most important type of arguing that we ever do is the arguing that takes place when there's no one else around. I'm not talking about Facebook arguing, okay? I'm talking about the arguing that goes on inside of me. And the arguing that I'm guessing goes on inside of you. Do you know there's a passage of scripture that defines that so very well? And if you read it really fast, it's a tongue twister, so we're not going to do that. I told you we're looking at Romans chapter 8 today. Turn there if you haven't already, but we're going to start a little bit before Romans chapter 8. If you're not sure where Romans is at, um, it's... About, about five books into your New Testament. Um, you got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, followed by the only history book in the New Testament, Acts. And then you have Romans. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Romans this year, I believe. Um, it's a very important book. Um, if you're not exactly where you're sure it's at in your Bible, use the table of contents. It's there for a reason. It'll put you where you need to be. All right. But we're not going to start today... In Romans chapter 8, because the very first word in Romans chapter 8, in the New American Standard anyway, is this, therefore. Okay, so when you see therefore, you want to know why it's there. What is it there for? So you got to look a little bit behind that, and what you will find, we're going to start in Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 14. And this is what we're going to find right in the middle of a little bit of law talk. I mean law talk, I'm not talking Barney Fife. I'm talking about a law that's been around a lot longer than Barney, okay? So, a little bit more about that here in just a second. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. I'll try to read this slow, because like I said, it can be a tongue twister. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I... For I am... See, I told you. you got to read it slow. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that, it, that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me but the doing of the good is not for the good that I want I do not do but I practice the very evil that I do not want but if I am doing the very thing I do not want I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur, concur with the law the God of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free... From the body of this death. Wow, is that encouraging? Is that just, I mean, is that the memory work that you've got? I mean, do you see that ever on a nice plaque in somebody's home? Wretched man that I am. Wretched, wretched, wretched. Okay. No, we don't see that Quite so much. Now, when you look at that passage of Scripture, do not misunderstand something. Paul is not talking about sin in some abstract way. Like, there's this sin that's somewhat kind of like separated from me. That's really not me. No. No, Paul, look at his teaching. Look at his writing. Paul believes that sin, I am, I am responsible for that. It's not just this abstract thing coming in and taking me over at times. Keep that in mind. As I said, this this incredible little chunk of scripture that we get from Paul is right in the middle of law talk. The law, meaning God's law. We boil that down to the Ten Commandments. Jesus boiled it down even more than that. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law can be summed up in these two things. You see, the law is powerless as great as the law is it is powerless to save not because it is flawed it's powerless to save because we are flawed we are messed up and the role of the law is to let us know that we are flawed that we are messed up and we all have experienced this in practical everyday life from different perspectives parents let me speak to you just for a moment what happens when you tell Junior not to climb the fruit tree in the backyard? That fruit tree that you purchased with your cold, hard cash, all right, that you earned. And you, fruit trees are not cheap. All right, especially if you don't get the ones at Walmart or Orsland's, but you order one online. You're talking a good fruit tree, you're talking 45, 50 bucks, okay? If you get a bigger one than that, it's going to be more. You plant that thing, you put the nice little screen around the trunk so those dumb rabbits in the wintertime won't come chew it up, all right? And then you put a cage around the thing so the deer won't come rub and eat on the thing. You do all this work, you've watered it, you've babied it, This because you some apples one day that's what you want and you take such good care of this thing and it grows and it's getting bigger and it's getting more and more beautiful and you have an epiphany one day and you tell junior you know that tree in the backyard if I ever see you climbing on that somebody's going to die okay now you might not say it quite in those terms but it's what's going on in the back of your mind you have poured your heart and soul into this tree all right Let me tell you something about Junior. He's never even looked at that tree. He doesn't even know that tree exists. But what happens when you tell him not to climb it? He climbs it. Exactly. Because the law shows us that we are messed up. All right? Speaking of fruit trees, just for a moment... This is a problem that we all have because we all have the same history that creates within us the same problem. I'm not talking about George Washington and a cherry tree, all right? I'm talking about history that predates that by a long time. There was another fruit tree in a garden. And God told two people, don't touch it, don't eat from it, leave it alone. And they ignored his command. And the result of that incredible error has changed us. And within us, it has given a, a sickness that we want to do what we should not do. You know, the end of chapter 7 of, of Romans... Seven, I mean, the end of this chapter is so telling. It is, it is so telling... And there are Bible experts who have tried to minimize the message found there. They say to themselves, surely, surely Paul can't be writing something like this. After all, this is the Apostle Paul. This is that that spiritual giant in our history. And surely, surely this is talking about his old life before Christ came. Like the battle that raged within him before Jesus You know, because we're talking about Paul here. Surely, he didn't have this type of battle raging within him on a regular basis. You know, the problem with that thought is this. This is the fact when you look. Matter of fact, I've got it written in my Bible right beside verse 17. In the Greek, it's written in the present tense. This is Paul's life. As he is writing this. And Paul, this is a confession of Paul. He's saying, I struggle. I struggle. What I am supposed to do, I don't do. And what I'm not supposed to do, I do. And he ends this confession, look at verse 24, I'm telling you, look at it again, because you're not going to find it on somebody's wall in their house. You're just not. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? You know, this reminds me of another time in scripture when an individual is facing death seemingly without much hope. And you can find it in John chapter 8. I'm not going to read it if you'd like to turn there. I have a feeling you'll be reading it later this week. But you don't have to turn there now. Now I'll tell you something about John chapter 8. The beginning part of it. Actually the last verse in John chapter 7. If you have a Bible that is, is a good, accurate translation of God's word. Which, as I've told you before, was originally written... In Greek, Koine Greek, the common language of the people, all right? It wasn't written in this English that we're reading here, okay? It was written many, many, many years ago. And when you look at the end of of John chapter 7 through the first 11 verses of John chapter 8, you'll see it probably in brackets or italics or something different. And then if you read off to the side, you're going to have an explanation of what's going on here. And what that explanation is going to say is this, this particular part in our Bibles is not found in the earliest manuscripts. I'm going to chase a squirrel just for a second, I promise. Just a second. Don't let anybody tell you what you hold in your hand when you hold a Bible is not accurate. Say, that's an ancient book. It's, it's full of fairy tales. It's so, it contradicts itself. It, it's, it's not accurate. Uh, you know, it's written so long ago. It's been changed so many times. Uh, no, no, it hasn't. Every single year they find more manuscripts of this from the first and second centuries and guess what when they find those manuscripts well believe it or not it just happens to say what this says now it says it in greek what you have in your hand is accurate don't let anybody tell you different right the world, which will say all of these ancient documents that are so valuable and so so, they reflect exactly what the author was saying. They have bits of fragments, small little portions of it. They've been recreated again and again and again. None of it compares to God's word, which they say, oh, that's not accurate. It's too old. Okay, I'll get, get through chasing that squirrel here for just a moment. All right, so. When you read something in your Bible that says about the earliest manuscripts, what it's talking about is this. The earliest manuscripts that have been found in those, when you find the Gospel of John, there's a lot of those out there, okay? The earliest ones don't have this encounter that took place between Jesus and this woman. That's not to say it didn't happen. It just says the earliest manuscripts don't it. So keep that in the back of your mind. There is probably, there's a very real possibility that what ha- this actually happened. All right? And not only that, what takes place and what is written about, it lines up really well with some encounters that Jesus had. One that pops into my brain is when Jesus met a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. All right, And very similar to the account we see here. So that being said, let's jump into it. Jesus is teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, doing his thing. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're going to try to trap him, going to test him and try to catch him in in some sort of error of what he's saying or what he does. So what they do is while he is teaching, they interrupt his teaching and they bring and throw before him a woman who has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now right off in my mind, I'm thinking, huh, what? Wait a second. Wait a second, you're telling me, Pharisees, you caught her in the act of adultery? Like, that sounds a little weird to me. Like, you set this whole thing up? Like, did you just go bursting upon the scene while she is in the act of adultery? That's the first thing that pops in my mind. That sounds a little twisted to me. Now, on top of it is, where's the guy? Where's he at? How come they just brought the woman? I don't don't understand what's taking place here. So, they are trying to trap Jesus. They bring, they throw this woman in front of him, and they say, you know what the law says? It says someone caught in this act death by stoning. And they say, what are you going to do? Well, if you look to the passage, Jesus doesn't say anything. He just kneels down and begins... Writing on the ground with his finger. And the, the dust on the ground. And after a little bit. I mean there's just nothing going on. It is silent. This woman I, I'm sure is, is probably crying. She is embarrassed. She is frightened. of What is going to take place now? And after a little while. Jesus looks up. And he says to those who are present. He says. Let the one here without sin. Throw the first stone. guess what happens? Nobody drags, now they weren't going to stone her right in the temple. But nobody takes her and drags her into a pit, throws her in a pit starts throwing rocks on her head. What happens instead is people begin walking away. Her accusers disappear. Jesus makes this statement and the thing about this who is the only one there worthy enough To cast the first stone. Who was the only sinless one there? Jesus. He's looking at the ground again. He looks up and everybody's gone. (laughs) She's still there. And he says, where did your accusers go? There's no one left to condemn you. Neither do I. Go your way and change. Sin no more. Jesus was the only one who had the authority. The only thing that these scribes and Pharisees got right was putting him in the place of judge because that's what he is. The only perfect judge who's ever lived. And he did not cast the stone. He let her go free. And he said, change. Repent. Can you imagine what that woman felt like as she walked away? I bet I know what she felt like when she was thrown in front of Jesus. Something a little bit like this. Verse 24 of Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? All right. Thankfully, this is not where Paul ends his dissertation. Let's read on. Chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This battle still rages within. And then, Man alive, why in the world they put a chapter separation right here? They really messed up on this one because they just keep on going, all right? Verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So here we find ourselves in this really strange conundrum. All right, And this is the conundrum. Paul is free. Why does he still struggle? Do you see this, what's going on here? He has been set free by Christ. And yet, he still struggles. Does that struggle bring him down? Does it weigh him down? That's a very important question. For everyone who struggles in this life. And to to help us with some answers to this. We're going to leave Romans for a little bit. And turn over to another one of Paul's works. It's Philippians. It's going to be a little ways over in your Bibles. It's Paul's words to the church in Philippi. It's It's called the joy letter of the Bible. Because Paul just can't. He just gushes all over himself when he's talking to these people. He uses the word rejoice so many times. And we find a lot of powerful, powerful instruction and encouragement when we look to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. This is what it says. Paul speaking. He says this. For I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Until the day of Christ Jesus. You got that? Let's read that again. That is incredibly important. This is Paul speaking to this church that he is so proud of. And this is what he says to them. He says, I am confident of this very thing that he God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The work has begun. It's not finished. The work in you and the work in me has begun. Who started that work? God. Let me tell you something about God. Are you one of those people that, you know, you look around your house and there's a few half-finished projects? Surely there's nobody in this room who's like that. Nobody, because you, you start a project, you finish it. I know, I know that people who do that are very few in number. All right? There might be a couple of you in here, but most, takes a little while to get that job done. You know, I started it, I'll finish it one day. Let me tell you something, God never leaves a project half finished. He always finishes His work. Always. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Beginning with verse 8. This is Paul speaking once again. He's talking about his past. He had some glory in his past, but glory that he doesn't think is all that important anymore. And beyond that, he says this, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now listen very closely, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's words here are incredibly helpful for us when we struggle. Paul struggled. Yes, he did. But he stayed the course. Knowing That Christ would finish his work. God had already begun a work in him. Paul remains eternally optimistic. Even on the tough days. Because he's free. God's already freed him. And in him God has begun a work. A work that he will finish. He's been grabbed up you see what Philippians chapter 3 says? Paul has been grabbed up by Christ. And let me tell you something about Jesus. He doesn't let go easily. Just look at the end of Romans chapter 8. Paul's confidence and our confidence is a powerful motivation for change. You see, brothers and sisters, through Christ, we are free. And on the days it doesn't really feel like it because I've battled so hard today. Why is it this difficult? Why is the battle with temptation this difficult? Is it ever going to get easier? Yeah, it will get easier, but the battle's not going away for now. But remember, We've been set free through Christ. And you know that. John chapter 8. Passage we looked at just a moment ago. You know what else John chapter 8 says. Says this. Those whom the son sets free. Are free indeed. This is why we continue to battle with ourselves. Young people in the Lord. And that means nothing. Has. Has has very rarely a lot to do with with your physical age. Because there's some people in this room who um, got not quite wet behind the ears anymore, a little seasoned, you know, been in this world for a while, but their walk in Jesus is still pretty new. We're still young in Jesus. Let me tell you something, I don't care where you are at in your spiritual age, since your rebirth through Jesus Christ, you and I will continue to battle with ourselves. We will. And we have the motivation to do so because we are free. And not only that, we have hope that the battle will one day draw to a close. And it will draw to a close in victory. Glorious victory. You've heard me say it again and again. And it fits right in well with what we're looking at today. Don't you just long for the day when your body doesn't argue with you anymore. That's eternity. In a moment in a twinkling of eye. We will be changed. We talked about it last week. And we will receive through Jesus Christ. A body that finally cooperates perfectly. Our will, our mind, our desires, our hopes, our dreams will all finally be unified in Christ Jesus forever. The same one who freed us will give us the strength to overcome our weaknesses. And guys, we need to go back to it and end there. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, you're going to be looking at this passage quite a bit this week. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Take these words to heart. If you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is your reality. This is your future. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. From the law of sin and of death. Amen. There is nothing. Nothing. Everything else pales in comparison. When we thank God for what He's done in our lives, nothing compares to freedom. Freedom from sin. The burdens that we carried are gone. They are lifted from our shoulders by the blood of Jesus. And because of that, when we come to our time of communion, we come and we say,